Well guys, welcome to the Online Weekend Experience. So glad that you guys are with us. We'd love to hear from you. It's good to keep in touch with you that are watching from home uh, and kind of tuning in this way. So glad that you're here. If I haven't met you before, my name's Aiden, one of the pastors here at Grace and love getting the opportunity uh, to speak. I have, I have two young boys. One is, I don't know, half a year and one is almost three, something like that. But we, in our house, it, you know, it's funny because kids say crazy things, but they also believe crazy things, right? And sometimes those things that they believe are like not important, like they're of no consequence, right? I came home one day and my son was convinced that there was a turtle in the vent. He was describing the turtle. He's like, there's a wet turtle, a green turtle. I came home, my wife was standing on the couch. She's like, you need to check. There might actually be a turtle. Like my, my two-year-old convinced my wife that there was a turtle in the vent, right? There was, there was not a turtle in the vent, but he, was, he believed this to be true but it had no bearing on our lives, right? And then sometimes they believe things that, that they're not very important, they're not of consequence yet, but they might be someday, right? My, my son, he's two, and we try to talk to him about Jesus and tell him stories about Jesus. And sometimes when you're talking to kids about Jesus, you realize how many stories about Jesus have to do with prostitutes or demons, right? So, but I'll tell him about Jesus, and he's convinced. He tells his mom that there's a story I told him. I was drying him off from a bath, and he says, Daddy told me a story where Jesus takes all the toys away from the little kids. And he says his favorite story about Jesus. I'm like, you're a pastor's kid. You're already off to a rough start. And now you're making up stories about Jesus. It's not very consequential right now, but it might be someday, right? But then there's things that your, your kids believe that are like utmost important, right? Like I, I want my, my boys to know just how much I love them. I grab their face and squish their cheeks. Like, you know, daddy loves you. And he's like, I want to go play, right? But it's so important to me that he believes that because you and I know that the things that we believe, they shape our lives. They shape the way that we, that we go out, the relationships that we have, the things that we do, what we believe shapes the way we live. And so today we are jumping into a new series called, called Culture Clichés and the Story of God. Because the reality is that we are living in a moment, right? We are in a place in the world during a time in history and we find ourselves in a culture that sometimes we don't realize is the way that it influences what we believe, right? There's this phrase, maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. It's this idea of, it's called cultural milieu. I don't know if I'm saying that second word right, cultural milieu. And I was looking at this, it's, it's kind of the setting or the environment of which a person lives, including social and cultural aspects of life. This is what it is. The cultural milieu is the cultural soup that we're all living in. It's, it's kind of all the art and technology and politics and global events and medicine and history, all this stuff that you and I live in and participate every day that our lives, the setting in which our lives take place is this cultural milieu, right? It's this cultural soup we live in. I couldn't think of a better analogy than soup, right? But the reality is that this soup we live in, it tells us stories about reality, about how things work about what is important, about what matters most, about what the goal of life is about. All the things, if you cruise around Facebook, you walk through the mall, you have conversations with people, you'll see that the cultural milieu we're in tells us the realities about how the world works. And what can happen is that because of the world that we exist in right now, in 2021, we believe things that may or may not be true. Things that maybe we haven't even ever thought about that we just assume are true, right? Perhaps, you know, like the turtle in the vent, they're of no consequence. Maybe like the story of Jesus taking toys from little kids. Maybe it's not important right now. Or maybe it makes all the difference and we just haven't stopped to think about it. So what I want to do today and what we're going to kind of do through this series is simply do this. 
I simply want to take a cup and kind of scoop up a little a little cup of soup, <laughs> a cup of the cultural milieu that we're in, kind of the cultural environment that we're in, and just kind of hold it up to the light and just take a look at it. Kind of look at the moment that we're in from different angles over the next five weeks and hold it up to the, the story of God. The story that the Bible tells us about God and his character and about our nature and about what the promises are and about where we've come from and where we're going, hold it up to the story of God and see what the things that we believe that we haven't realized that we believe, how they contrast with the beauty and the story of God. And so today I kind of want to introduce this idea, kind of take a scoop out, look at it, and then compare it to one of these aspects today. So we're going to, we're going to fly uh, today. So the first thing you guys can write down. And with, and we say this every week, you don't have to agree with everything we usually we say to come here. You don't have to agree with what we say to turn this video on, right? Agree, disagree, but I kind of want to just have us think through some things today. So you can write this down. We live in a spiritually self-curated culture. We exist, America and the West, 2021, we live in a spiritually self-curated culture. And kind of the, the two pillars, or maybe the two main ingredients is better. We're just going to run down the soup analogy today. These, the two main ingredients of this cultural milieu, this cultural soup that we're in, I want to look at. The first one is this, and you can agree or disagree, but I think the first major ingredient of the kind of the cultural moment that we're living in is this idea of individualism, of individualism. I was at Chipotle the other day, it happens a lot, and I was at Chipotle and I realized on my cup or my bag or something, it said, build your own happiness. And I thought, you know, that is, I'm not, I, I could be wrong, but I'm not sure that the cups in India in the 1400s said, build your own happiness. I'm not sure that like, you know, Africa in the 12th century, their, their motto is build your own happiness, right? That seems to be something that is pretty prevalent to the culture and the cultural milieu that we are in today. It said, build your own happiness. And we, we kind of become curators, right? Of simple things like our, our, uh, the things we subscribe to. Maybe it's newspapers and magazines. Maybe it's our, our feeds, you know, our social media feeds. We become curators. We like pages. We like certain things and we get more and more of that. We become curators of what we see and what we take in, right? Things are, companies make a lot of money off of this, right? About curating things to what we want. But we also, we curate our relationships, Right? We're in a time and day where we can move where we want, whether it's jobs, whether it's house, whether it's our gym, we can move where we want so we can curate our relationships. That hasn't been the case throughout time in history. If you were born in a city, maybe that's where you grew up and that's where you raised and that's where your family was and that's where you died. You had the relationships that you were born with. But we can kind of curate those things in some ways, right? We can curate ourselves. The way we feel, the way we look, we can curate all these things. We're used to fashioning things the way that we want them. There's a, a guy named Jonathan Lehman. He said this. I think this is interesting. He says, individualism is not rooted in being anti-community. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about individualism. He says, everyone loves the idea of community, except for maybe the hermit. Rather, individualism is rooted in being anti-authority. He says, I will gladly hang out with you so long as you don't tell me who I have to be or what I have to do. It's interesting, right? And this, this main ingredient in our cultural soup of individualism says that the ultimate authority is me. It's interesting to think about. I think the second, the second kind of main ingredient in this soup that we're kind of living in is this idea of spirituality. Spirituality. If you think about just even, even the moment that we're in here in America, we have a culture that in, in different ways was founded on God or some vague idea or belief in God, right? Some of those people were Christians. Some of those people were deists where they just believed in a God 
Nonetheless, there's this idea of God that kind of has floated around in our culture, right? In our, even our country since the beginning. You know, I was just talking to a teacher friend the other day. I'm like, do they still say the Pledge of Allegiance? Yes. Is God still in it? Yes, right? It's interesting. God's on our money, at the courthouse, all these types of things, right? If you look at the history of even our country, there's this idea of manifest destiny, that, that God has given us this country for a special purpose. And he wants us to go, you know, almost like the nation of Israel. And when you've got a message from God, you'll do a lot of things, right? I think it's even interesting in our, in our modern day. I looked at this. You may have heard this before. In 1999, 70% of our country had some kind of religious institution affiliation, whether it was a mosque, a synagogue, a church. 70%. That's, that's huge. And now you may have heard recently, people were getting worked up about it, that church attendance or religious affiliation uh, attendance now in 2021 has sunk below 50% to 47%. People are all getting worked up about it, right? I actually think that that's still a huge number. Almost half of the country in 2021 has some connection. What I mean is that there's this spiritual aspect that floats around. I was looking at this yesterday. 4% are atheists. 4% of our country would say, I don't believe that there is a God. That's incredibly low. And what you think about is that these residual beliefs of whether it's how our country was founded on some idea of God or whether it's the 90s when 70% of people went to church, whatever it was, there's this idea of spirituality whether it's from church or something else that floats around that we kind of feel in our conversations, right? That certain people will kind of, kind of communicate, right? And maybe this is not better uh, summed up than the statement that we hear nowadays. I'm spiritual, but not religious. That there is this, we, we have this, this feeling in our gut that there's more than just the material, that things matter, that there's value to things, that there's importance, that there's something bigger than us, but we're not exactly sure what that is, that we're spiritual, but we're not religious, right? And because these two ingredients that run through our reality, we will often hear phrases, and this is kind of this cliche I want to throw at you today, is that we'll hear phrases like this when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about God, maybe having conversations as, as followers of Jesus, we'll, we'll talk to individuals in our society, and maybe this is something you struggle with, but we'll hear phrases like this, I can't believe in a God who blank." can't believe in a God who sends people to hell, who would allow suffering, who wouldn't agree with my lifestyle, who doesn't change, who's so mad, who's maybe so loving, right? I can't believe in a God who blank. It's an interesting statement, right? When you think about the idea of spirituality and the idea of individualism, or maybe it's worded this way, my God wouldn't blank. He wouldn't say that. He wouldn't do that. He wouldn't agree with that party. You know, you watch two different news channels and you get two different pictures of God sometimes on what God is like. My God wouldn't blank. It's interesting, right? Have you ever heard this? Have you ever thought this? I want to I be clear. There, there's hard things to understand and believe about God, right? Like there's like stuff, you, you, you read the Bible and there's, there's some things that are hard, hard to wrap our hearts and minds around sometimes, right? But what I think is worth considering is the lens by which this line of thinking comes from may be unique to our culture. Is it unique that we are in a culture that says, my God wouldn't blank, or I can't believe in God who blank? It might be unique to our culture. There's cultures that have true and present danger and enemies that they may not struggle with ideas of hell and judgment the same way we do. That there might be, you know, throughout time and history, honor and shame cultures that view pain as different than we do, as, as a necessity, right? Not something to try just to get rid of and to medicate away. In a day where there's spiritual influence, Yet ultimate authority rests in the individual and you and me. 
We are bound to pick and choose the attributes and the qualities of God that best suit our inner wants and desires, even if we don't realize that we're doing it, right? And so what we have done is that we have curated a God in our own image. We've curated a God in our own image. There's a quote, uh, some people think it was Voltaire, some people think it was Mark Twain. It says, if God has made us in his image, we have returned the favor. It's interesting, right? The narrative that we see all through scripture, it's kind of this constant tension all through the story of scripture and it starts in the garden is the struggle for who is in control, who really is God. And if there is God, is he good? Can we trust him, right? The lie in Genesis 3, God, God created, in, in, in the book of Genesis, God created this good world, right? And he puts, he puts man and woman in this garden to kind of be his, his partners in this good work that he's doing in the world. And what happens a couple chapters later in Genesis 3 is that the serpent, the serpent figure, tempts Adam and Eve and questions God's goodness. He says that if they eat from this tree that God told them not to eat from, that their eyes will be opened and they will be like God. And that's the struggle that we see throughout the rest of the Bible and throughout the rest of the history is that we can be God. We can be like God. And so we find ourselves in a culture where we define who God is. It's an interesting moment, right? And here's kind of the situation I want us to wrestle with a little bit as we just think and process through this. If we are sitting around a table and there's hardship, or there's pain, or there's some, some decision, response, reaction that we have to come to, and we're sitting around the table, and we say, well, you just got to trust God. You just got to trust God. Which God are we talking about? Who is this God that we're talking about? Because we may assume that we're talking about the same God, but if you turn on the news, if you have a conversation in our pluralistic society, we will quickly realize that we are not always talking about the same God, even if we claim it's the God of Christianity. We're talking about the God of the TV preachers, or maybe now it's the YouTube social media preachers. That's all about my health and happiness, or maybe it's passion and purpose. Is that the God we're talking about? Is it the God of the country music who, who drinks beers with Jesus, right? Is it the God of the Westboro Baptist Church who apparently hates everyone except for them? Is it the God of the award shows who helped everybody get to where they are today? Is it the God of the American left or is it the God of the American right? Is it a God who's more of a force, more of the universe, more of a concept or an idea? What God are we talking about when we talk about trusting God? Because what happens is we curate a God in the image of our own preferences sometimes. We curate God in the image of our own preferences. I was, I was uh, listening to something. I was listening to a, a college professor. He, he teaches a class at a seminary, and he teaches about, uh, about God, right? And what he does when the students come in, he gives them, he gives them a survey. He gives them a survey, and it, it just asks about them and who they are, their, interested, their interests and their likes and their dispositions and all these things. Then what he does is about a month later, deeper into the class, he gives them a survey about God, about what they think God is like, about his personality, about his likes, his dispositions, and all these things. And he says 90 to 95% of these line up that the God that they describe, and this is in a seminary class, looks a lot like them, right? Because we can curate God in our own preferences, right? That we can make God in the image of our politics sometimes, it, it is no secret that in kind of the world that we're in, as we continue to move past some of these established religions into our own kind of pluralistic world that we're in, that politics in this moment that we're in, in this cultural soup that we're in, is our new religion in a lot of ways. 
because it creates communities. It gives a sense of right and wrong. It gives a vision for how to fix the ills of society. And it lives deeply in our sense of identity. That politics becomes this new religion. A guy named David Zoll, he's an author, he says, If once upon a time we look to politics primarily for governance, we now look to it for belonging, righteousness, meaning, and deliverance. It's interesting, right? It's a pastor, his name is Rich Villados in New York City. He says, To critique a political leader is to critique my party, which is to critique my values, which is to critique the way I read the Bible, which is to critique my conception of God. We look at kind of some of the landscape that we see today regarding politics, right? And sometimes it's so volatile and we think people get all worked up. But it's interesting because we when, we, when we make an accusation or disagree with something politically with someone, we're not just saying, I don't think that's the best way to do something. We're saying, I think you have a problem because we hold, we hold these politics like in this place of religion so close to our souls and our identity, right? That we can create God in the image of our politics. And sometimes what we can do is we can create God in the image of our pain. I, I, want, I want to be like tender with this, but I, w- I want you to consider this. You know, our pain, whether it's something very deep or something mild, the situations that we've been through, they change the lens by which we see situations, right? Like our relationships with people, our marriages, our friendships, our authority, like these are all influenced by pain that we carry, by the stories that we have, right? And we can project those same things onto God. If you're someone who grew up with a disconnected father, maybe a father who was abusive or aggressive, you can, you can, that changes the way that you relate to God some ways. Because if God is a father, you knew what your father was like, so you're like, I want no part of this. Or your reactionary said, man, my father is this way, and if God is a father, I know that he would never push back on me. He would never challenge me. He would never call me to do something I didn't want to do because those experiences were negative with my father, right? Some of us had rough childhood in different ways. Maybe you're bullied. Maybe you're made fun of. All these different things for certain ways that you were. And so we think, man, God would never oppose me. He would never push back on me. He never challenged me because those things were hurtful. So my God is only accepting. He only affirms every aspect of everything I ever think about, right? For some of us, we've got deep wounds that we don't want to uncover. We don't want to address. We don't want to talk about. We are just going to keep those things buried. And so when we talk about God... God isn't a God who digs into the soul, who cuts deep. We just have a God who kind of floats on the surface of our existence, right? Who we just kind of say quick prayers to and sing worship song on Sunday. But we don't let him deep into our souls because that is a painful place. So God just rests on top. We create God in the story of our pain sometimes. But whether it's our preferences, our politics, our pain, or any number of other things that we create God in our image of, this God that we create, this God that we curate, How does he deal with the evil in the world? How does he enact justice? What does he do when you blow it, when you're the one who sins and brings evil into the world? What does he do with your pain when you truly have been hurt? Can you truly cry out to this God that you've created? Does he push back on you? Does he disagree with you? Does he challenge you? Does he call you to something deeper? Is he more of just a concept, more of a state of mind? Does this God have the capacity to push back in the realities of life? As we take a cup into that culture milieu and we just look at that, those aspects of individuality and spirituality and what that means for our understanding of God, what I want us to do for the next couple minutes is look at the story of God in just a snapshot and see if this is the God that we can create in our own image and we all do this, we all bend God to look a lot like us, who is the God of the Bible? 
that the church has been worshiping for thousands of years, has been handed down to us through, through church history and through the scriptures. Who is the God of the Bible? Now, we could go a, thou- a thousand different, like, <laughs> like for five minutes here, we're going to talk about who is God, right? We could talk about what, Bible, what the Bible reveals to us about the heart of God, what we see God doing, the things that are beautiful, the things that are kind of maybe a little bit cringy to us. Like, how do we understand God? And what I want to simply do is today is look at God's character. What is God like? What is he like? I want to do a quick 30,000 foot view for the rest of the day. To be honest with you, we'll probably swing back and have a whole series and really dig into this passage here. But in the book of Exodus, early on in the, in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, God, he verbally says who he is and what he is like. As I said, we see God revealing himself through scriptures and, and authors of the biblical authors describing God in so many different ways, in so many different circumstances, from poetry to story to history to letters. But what we want to do today for the next couple minutes is look at who does God say that he is? What language does God use to describe himself? I want to just fly over this today. We're going to go to Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. You guys can open that. If you got your Bibles, your phones, we'll throw it on this little nifty TV right here. But this, this passage is, you know, one of the passages in our, in our culture, John 3, 16, you may have heard, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. It's a passage that we hear everywhere. This passage, some authors have said, is kind of the John 3, 16 of the Old Testament. This passage is quoted 30 times throughout the Bible. It's kind of referenced back to, right? The biblical authors swing back to this passage. Exodus 34, you can read it with me here, verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. You started with this nice stuff about God's compassion and ended with kids and you're like, now what is going on? Right, we'll unpack it, but just walk with me here. This is a story where God, there's a man named Moses in the Old Testament and he has this very intimate relationship with God and God calls Moses to lead his people of Israel out of captivity and leads them to the side of this mountain. And there God reveals himself in this passage to Moses and he says, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. As we dive into this, I just want to be clear, we could, we could sit on this passage for a year and extrapolate all this stuff and we just kind of want to fly over this today. But there's three, three quick things I want us to look at about the character of God, about who God says that he is in this passage. First thing he says that we see is that God is personal. God is personal. He's not a human, but he's a person. He's a being. We see this at the beginning, the Lord, the Lord. What this is, is the translation is Yahweh, Yahweh. Sometimes we think of God, and so we're not sure who we're talking about when we talk about God because it's just kind of this generic idea of this creator being. Yet in this passage, it says Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, that God has a name, right? That God is not just a force. He's not just like the universe. That's what pantheism is, is that the God is the universe, and just kind of every tree and bug is kind of God. And we like that. That's not what the God of the Bible talks about, that God is personal, that he's not just a concept. Like, well, God is kind of like love and love is kind of like God. Like, that's not what he's talking about. That's called humanism. We're kind of the value of something. The value or concept or idea is elevated to the position of God. What we see here is that God is personal. And God has a name, Yahweh. Name was a big deal. 
all, all through the scriptures, whether it's places, whether it's people, a name revealed a lot about a situation is a key element to the story. It changes the way you read the Bible and see the emphasis of a name, right? God often will change the names of individuals throughout the scriptures to denote a, a change in their purpose or a change in their calling, right? Simon became Peter, Saul became Paul, Abram became Abraham, and all these names had intense meanings that directs us to the story of Jesus, the story of God. A guy named Michael Niles, he's a professor, he says, in the world of Hebrew scriptures, a personal name was often thought to indicate something essential about the bearer's identity, origin, birth circumstances, or divine purpose the bearer was meant to fulfill. A name was almost like a resume, right? Like a a profile. The meaning of your name was so core to your identity. And what we see here, as God says, Yahweh, Yahweh, and then unpacks who he is, that we see a God who can be and wants to be known. It's important, right? Because sometimes we interact with God, even if we don't mean to, subconscious that he's this force, that he's this idea, that he's this concept, that he's distant, yet we see that God is personal, that he has a name that he wants to be known. Second thing we see here is that God is merciful. God is merciful. Look at what he says here. This, we can unpack so much of this, but the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This description, it's interesting, it starts with these three pairs of these traits that describe God's mercy, and then ends with one that describes his justice. This first pair we see is that he is compassionate and gracious. The second pair is that he's slow to anger, that he's patient, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. And the third one is that he's maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Throughout ancient writings of other cultures. You know, we're looking at the, the, the Jewish, the Jewish uh, story of God. It's kind of where we follow the line to the church and where we're at. You look at other ancient civilizations at the time and they would have ideas of God and their gods, but, and they would have descriptions of, of their gods. But in the ancient world, to say that God is compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving, these are not descriptors of all these other gods. These are described the descriptors of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, right? And if you, we put this up here, we, you know, God is merciful, he's loving, compassionate. You're like, I, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They tell me that on the fish, right? We sing songs about God's love all the time. And it becomes this vague idea with no teeth. But as you drill into these meanings of the word, they're words that God's compassion the extent of his loving kindness and his faithfulness, it should make us uncomfortable. I want to just show you one, one example. I said how this passage is referenced 30 times throughout the scriptures. One of the passages we see is in the book of Jonah. Jonah is a prophet, and God has called Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh. And the Ninevites are not good dudes. The Ninevites, like we, I won't unpack it, but they're like, like, think of, like, Nazi Germany or ISIS. Like, they're, like, flaying their enemies. Gnarly people in the ancient world, these Ninevites. And God wants Jonah, one of his prophets, he's like, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to call them to repentance that they might worship me. And Jonah's like, no. And Jonah goes the opposite direction to Tarshish, right? Goes the opposite direction. God uses this big fish. They throw him overboard. He uses this big fish to bring him back to Nineveh. 
And so Jonah preaches to Nineveh. He basically comes, he tells them to repent. And the Ninevites repent. And you read the story in, in kids' books and it says, oh, he's a fish and it's a story. And you never get to chapter four. Where Jonah says this, because these are his enemies. These are evil people. These aren't people that cut him off in traffic. These are people who were like Israel's arch enemies who would have murdered and flayed and conquered Israelites and done horrible things. Jonah 4, 1 through 3. It says, after they repent, after the Ninevites repent, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home, that this is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish? Look what he says. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, God. You're slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Like he throws God, these, these characteristics of God that we read that we're like, God is so nice and compassionate. He reminds me of my boyfriend. That these, these descriptors of God, Jonah is throwing back at God angrily that he doesn't just show these characteristics to the, his people, but he shows these to his enemies. Jonah says, now Lord, take away my life for it's better for me to die than live. Like Jonah can't live with God's compassion and grace. It's angering to him. We want God to be gracious to us. We want God to be forgiving to us and our people in our perspective. But what about when God extends his, his character, his compassion, his grace, his loving kindness, his faithfulness, his forgiveness to our enemies? It feels different. We start to get this picture of the extent and the power of God's grace. And what it also reveals to us is that we are perhaps more sinful than we realize. Third thing I want to look at that we see in this in God's description of himself is that God is just. This is where we get a little wiggly sometimes, right? Verse 7, the second half of verse 7 says, Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. You're like, let's just, can we talk about that part real quick? Can we just, can we talk about the children thing, right? I want to hit this elephant real quick and then circle back to the first half of this verse. This passage is not saying what it sounds like it's saying. The, you may be asking like, am I, am I bearing the sin for like what my grandpa did? Like, is that what this is saying? Like, you know, if grandpa steals some stuff, I got to bear the weight of it. It's not what it's saying. But Aiden, that's what it's saying. It's not what it's saying because in other places... God's very clear that, that a parent bears the weight of their own sin and a child bears the weight of their own sin. Ezekiel 18, Deuteronomy 24, 16, check it out. It's not easy reading, but it's clear in the law of God that that, that is the situation, that we bear the weight of our own sin. But what we do see is something different. In a couple different translations, in the ESV, New King James, it says it, says it this way. It says that he is visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. What we see is this picture is that he's saying the guilt and sin of people has generational effects. Not generational punishment necessary, but generational consequence, right? Generational consequence. It's not, we don't have to look hard to see the impacts of sin from generation to generation throughout your own family, throughout people that you're around. That we see these patterns and these cycles of sin and of destruction and of pain throughout generations because of sin, because of our guilt. Not punishment, but we see the effects of it, right? But look at what he does say. I want, to, I want to focus in on this first part of this verse. But he does not leave the guilty unpunished. That we see these, these three pairs of God's compassion and his love and his grace. But we get to this. And this is where we have a hard time. 
We have a hard time with this idea of God and oftentimes we think my God wouldn't blank or if we really get into God's justice and we're all about God being just, usually the, the sin in our lives, he's like better with than other sins, right? But God's character is not to turn a blind eye to sin, to brush it off or to ignore it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't trust a parent that did that. You wouldn't trust a parent that did that. You wouldn't trust a legal system that did that. And you wouldn't want to trust a God who's like, nah, no big deal. Don't worry about it, right? There's too much injustice in the world. There's too much pain. There's too much suffering to trust a God who's like, nah, it's fine. Don't worry about it, right? We see injustice in our world. We see the effects of sin in our world. We may not call it that. We may call it a whole plethora of modern soft language, but we see it. Unfair wars, sex trafficking, inequality, murder, theft, bigotry, all kinds of things. The list goes on and on. The Bible has so many lists of all these sins that play out. And it wrenches our gut and we long for these things to be dealt with, right? We, we try to find ways to deal with these things in our world, right? In a, in a number of different ways, right? And that's good, right? We want to deal with the evil and the sin and the injustice and the, the effects of this in our world, right? It's why people protest. It's why countries revolt. It's why sometimes we can't watch the news because the world is upside down in the depth of our souls. We all want it to be right side up. Thank God that Yahweh is just and he does not leave the guilty unpunished. When we compare the story of our moment to the story of God, the story of God ends, we see that God makes all things right. That is not some fairy tale. That's not some float off to a distant shore. Nice idea. But Jesus will make all things new, that he will deal with sin and he will make all things right. These are concepts of judgment and hell that we don't always love to talk about, but we want things to be dealt with. And here's the good news, that God is going to deal with sin that he will make all things new. He is slow to anger. He is patient. He is forgiving, but he will deal with sin. It's part of the story of God. But here is the bad news. Is that in order to deal with and to eradicate sin and the effects of sin from God's good earth and to make all things new, you and I get swept up in that work because we are more sinful than we realize. We will talk about this next week. But we will look at situations and other people and say, look at the gross sin and look at the effects, look at these people, but we do not see it in ourselves. We hate murder, but we will slander and we will hate others. We hate the idea of sex trafficking, but we will engage with pornography. We hate injustice, but we will buy all of our clothes from kids who made it in a sweatshop. We hate inequality. but we will use our unlimited resources and we will let Amazon continue to bring us junk to our house that we don't need so many aspects of our lives we don't realize contribute to all the suffering and pain and sin and darkness we see in the world. We're unaware of much of what we do, much of what we say, much of the attitudes that we have that contribute to the sin in the world. We hate injustice. We hate the effects of sin, but we do not take it nearly as serious as God takes it. Thank God that Yahweh is forgiving, slow to anger, and compassionate. Because in the midst of the sin and the darkness that we bring into the world, in his compassion and grace and patience, God gives a way to new life, to deal with our sin and destruction by taking it on himself and not leaving it there, but inviting us to become partners with him in the good work that he is doing in the world. God's character is ultimately revealed in the person of Jesus. John says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling 
among us. That Yahweh, the creator God, left his glory in heaven in the person of Christ, came and dwelt with us as a Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. That we see the personal nature of God, the mercy of God, the justice of God all collide in the person and in the work of Jesus. His mercy and his justice, right? That we see the compassion of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus. We see this, but we see the justice of God fulfilled in Christ. 2 Corinthians says that God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, that he will not leave the guilty unpunished, but he will punish the sin. And we, as followers of Jesus, if you have put your faith in Jesus, the punishment for your sin has been brought upon Jesus. And we see that Jesus is the culmination of all these aspects, all this nature of God, that we see God in the flesh embodied in Jesus. And he calls us to follow him in his way of life, in his way of making all things new as his church. It is a step of faith. It is a step of faith to believe that a personal God created the world, came as a man, rose from the dead, and is going to make all things new. You're like, that's a lot, Aiden. Yep. And even if you're a follower of Jesus, and even if you've grown up in church, you're like, yep, check, I believe all those things, but it's a hard thing to actually step in and put our faith into day to day. To let that worldview be the center of our lives, and not just a hobby that we're passionate about, but the center of our existence, and to truly trust that. And you may be, may be listening and you may be someone who's not sure with God and it, it's, it's also a step of faith to believe that the cultural soup that we're in is the peak of human existence and that if we just progress a little bit further that we will attain utopia, heal all the wrongs of this world and that we will just continue on in this perfect existence forever. Like that's, that's a step of faith too. It's a step of faith to believe that we came from nowhere, that we're going nowhere and therefore we should just love everyone like that. That's a step of faith. It's a step of faith to throw my life into a God that I created and to trust that the God who looks just like me is actually trustworthy when the rubber hits the road, when the pain truly comes, when I have truly sinned. Like that, that's a step of faith as well. I was talking with uh, Pastor Jonathan as I was preparing this. As I prepare, I can't just sit down and write it. I got to like talk to everyone for a thousand hours. It's a long process. But I was talking to Jonathan. I was having this conversation the, 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 the shift that we, we make as we lean in and trust God, as we acknowledge the character of God, is almost as when we create God in our own image, it's almost, it's almost like we are the center of existence. And so we say, my God wouldn't blank. I can't believe in a God who blank. God is like this guy. And we kind of, we create him around us, right? Versus God being at the center and us revolving around him reminds me of, you know, during, during the Enlightenment period and the, I don't know, Renaissance, whenever this time was, right? When they used to believe that the earth was the center of the galaxy, right? That the earth was the center and that the stars and the moon and the sun and everything revolved around the earth. But I was reading about this. This is the most I'm ever going to read about this. But the, all their calculations were off. They were trying to make sense of certain calculations. Certain things didn't make sense. Certain things didn't add up because they believed that the earth was the center of everything. But Copernicus, who was a, who was a Christian, and didn't really land necessarily great at the church at the time, but Copernicus came up with a theory of heliocentrism, that the sun was actually the center of our solar system, that the sun was the center, not the earth. And as the sun became the center, and they understood the sun to be the proper center of our solar system, 
and that everything revolves around the sun, all these equations, all these different things, that these gaps in their understanding started to line up, started to make sense because they put the sun in the center. Our life, we, we try so hard to make sense of God, to understand God, to reconcile hard aspects of the scriptures, to reconcile hard aspects of our lives. We try to understand these things all while keeping ourselves in the center of the solar system and letting God revolve around us. It's never going to work. It's never going to add up. It's never going to make sense. We cannot believe in God in a passive sense and let this stuff make sense. Jesus doesn't call us just to believe and acknowledge the fact that he's real. He calls us to follow him. And those things might not make sense, but that's what he calls us to because we're all putting our faith in something. We're all believing in something. And maybe we're just believing the cliches and the cultural milieu, the soup that we're in, and we're seeing the world through that lens and we're assuming this is the right way to see everything. Where the story of God is more complex, it's more beautiful, it's more dense than anything we could have created, anything that we could have thought up ourselves. So I just want to ask you, who, who is God to you? Who is he to you? Is he a God that you have created? I would encourage you, I would challenge you, if you're not sure where you're at with God, if you're not even sure what you believe about this whole thing, is maybe to question your understanding of spirituality. Where did you come to this? Where did your beliefs about God or about spirituality, about faith, whatever form that takes, where did they come from? What was the origin of that? Like, where, where is the end of it? Where does it go? How do we eradicate sin? How do we deal with the problems of the earth? How do we deal with our own sin? How do we deal with pain and with suffering? Like, where do all these things come from? Acknowledge, like the Bible, like it's tough stuff to swallow and to step into and believe, but it can be just as hard for us in our modern cultural soup to make sense of that as well. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I would, I would encourage you, has your belief in God's character in his, pers- his, his intimacy, the, the personal nature of God, the, the, the almost infuriating sense of his mercy, the humbling sense of his justice, has it gone from just an acknowledgement of head to a trust in the heart? That in my decisions and in my relationships and in my responses and in all these areas in my life, that I, I trust God's character? Sometimes we can believe he's real. We're like, yep, I believe in God. Put him on our money. We want to put Christ back in Christmas, but sometimes we need to put Christ back in the Christians because we acknowledge that God is a person. We acknowledge that he's important. We acknowledge, but we haven't trusted his character. We haven't trusted Yahweh and who he says he is, his compassion and his grace and his faithfulness and his justice. You pray with me this morning. God, as we just acknowledge that we are just, we are in a space, we are in a time, we are in a world that is telling us all kinds of realities about how things should work. These things are centered around us. They have vague kind of spiritual uh, bits and pieces to them, God. But God, I pray that you would help us to kind of doubt our doubts, to question the, the reality of the world that we're in, to hold it up against the story of you. And God, as we, as we look at your story, it, it takes patience, it takes endurance to, to sit in your story, to sit with your people, to sit in your word, to, to trust you in the silence and to follow you into your story. God, I pray that you would help us to lean into what you've called us to. God, I pray that you'd forgive us for making you look a lot more like us and us putting ourselves in the center of the universe. God, we don't want to trust a God who is just us, only bigger. 
God, I pray that your, your compassion, that your justice would grate up against our understandings, up against our relationships, up against our own sin. That we might see you for who you really are. That we might see you revealed in Jesus. That we might see the heart of Christ as your heart. And that it might humble us, it might challenge us, it might call us to trust and follow you. We're thankful for your grace in all things. We're thankful for your faithfulness. We're thankful for your kindness. We're thankful for your justice. We trust you. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.